stand here today as a people grateful for where you have brought us uh, in life on this earth. Uh, creatures broken in our sin and um, failing before a holy God, a creator, yet now restored through your Son, Jesus Christ, by your sovereign and redeeming love. And so we sing as a people grateful. We stand now and think upon your kindness to us. And as we look at your word, Lord, be kind as well. Help us to see what you would have us see from your word, to learn this weekend what it is to love one another as Christ has loved us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hope you guys had a good summer um, and had an enjoyable one or a uh, productive one. Um, just to show of hands, how many of you guys did summer school? Yeah? All right. Reluctant raising. How about an internship or a job of some sort? There you go. Hey, like it. It's good. Who uh, traveled the furthest, whether that's home, far, or like vacation far? Who went out of the country big time? Yeah, where'd you go? Okay, awesome. Portugal. Love it. Anywhere else? Far? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you did. Talk about it, Mike. Yeah, you did. Not just yourself, right? With your new bride. That's awesome. Congrats, guys. That's good. Love it. Um, awesome. Uh, I hope you guys had a good summer. It does feel like uh, around campus at Grace that the fall is like well on its way. Uh, we're probably, Riley, what are we, like five or six weeks into the semester? Uh, Riley's, <laughs> Riley's had uh, two midterms already and, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, Zach, our oldest, uh, Riley's not my son, but Zach is. Uh, Zach started school a month ago, and he loves it for now. So we'll see when he, when he realizes it's forever, then maybe he'll, he'll, he'll crumple. Don't, don't break it to him this weekend, guys, okay? So uh, do, do us that favor. But he, he loves school. We're loving this season of uh, just starting the fall and getting ready for, for UCLA and um, just excited to be, be back with you guys and, and be here this weekend. Um, this weekend, we're going to take a look at uh, what we call the one another's, and maybe you saw that title and you said, I have no idea what that means, and I'm going to just go, though, and the topic will figure itself out. I'm just going to go there for friends. Maybe you were at your home church and you heard a sermon on this recently. Uh, maybe you went to the seminar uh, in Sundays in July on the one another's. There was one uh, at our church. Uh, one of the elders taught on the one another's. The one another's, as we'll see uh, tonight and through this weekend, are an important theme in the New Testament. Uh, this is a topic that's been, uh, honestly, on my heart for a while. As I think about where our ministry's at, I think about the things that you guys talk to me about, the things that you have questions about, uh, the one another's, and kind of where God has us, uh, is where we need to be this weekend. I'm convinced that there is a need for us to grow in our love for one another as we begin this year. And so we've decided to focus this weekend on, on this theme, the one another's. And specifically, we've seen this weekend around uh, a verse, John 13, 35. Don't turn there quite yet, but we'll get there. Uh, it's Jesus saying, 
to the disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a verse that we'll talk a lot about this weekend, and I hope that as we dive into this study, even tonight, it will sort of be a verse that is fixed in your mind, that it's an easy verse to memorize and sort of to rehearse and remember, and I hope that it's stuck in your mind even now as I read it out loud. These are the words of our Savior, a very clear vision he has for love between his disciples, between those who follow him. They are to love one another, and that's a testimony to the outside world. It's a vision for love between the disciples, but this verse so helpfully bridges the gap between the love we're to have for one another in the church and the fact that, in the very words of our Savior, that kind of love between believers is a tremendous testimony to a watching world of the transforming love of Jesus. You see, there's no in-reach and outreach distinction here. There's no uh, teams devoted to uh, outreach and then teams that just care about us in this. That those who are devoted to Christ would devote themselves to loving one another, Jesus says, shows the world what the gospel of Jesus is. You see in John 13, 35 terms, our love and our witness are one and the same. And so as we think about Welcome Week and the fall and all of the gospel opportunities that we'll have in the next few months, it's my hope that this weekend, as we examine our love for one another, that there would be a twofold effect, that there would be a building and a unifying effect in our ministry. Uh, but that also, secondly, there would be a multiplying or a magnifying effect for our gospel witness as a group. There are really, as you think about it, only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who keep a to-do list and those who are normal human beings. Those who, maybe the people with to-do lists would consider, are driven by the tyranny of the urgent, just kind of doing the most urgent thing, whatever's at the top of your mind. What kind of person are you? Are you a to-do list person? Or are you a normal human being? Maybe you use the Reminders app like I try to do. Uh, maybe you use Todoist, or apparently there's an app called Tick, Tick, not TikTok. Uh, maybe you're organized enough as a 12-year-old to have used Wonderlist when it was still around, which is now Microsoft To Do. Or maybe you're analog. Maybe you got a notebook and a pencil and a, a checklist right up in there. To-do lists are very appropriately, yet very forgetfully named. These lists, literally called what they are, represent the things that you need to do, or maybe more accurately, the things that you should have already gotten done. But when we think about our to-do list, we tend to have a 
different way of thinking than maybe we should. We think of these lists as a checklist of things to do, almost so that I can check them off, because it feels good to check those boxes, right? And eventually, hopefully, you catch up, and you have no more things to check off. And then you add more things, of course, right? The to-do list becomes an end in and of itself. It becomes the focal point of the way you live sometimes. You live to get things done. You live to complete the list. You could say the structure becomes the substance. The structure of a to-do list becomes the substance. The very purpose of the to-do list becomes lost in the to-dos themselves. The one another's are a list, like to-do lists. The, to, the one and others are, are a list, a categorization, and they're so commonly referenced in the church that at times it's hard to know whether half the people in a given room in the church even know what the one and others are. But like to-do lists, the one and others are self-titled. And like to-do lists, the one another's are a list commonly misconstrued where the structure becomes the substance. The very purpose of the list of the one another's becomes lost in the fact that there are so many one another's. And so we tend to lump them together and think, well, yeah, those are the things that we're supposed to do in the church. And we kind of leave well enough alone. Now, the one and others, if you're not familiar, are the 59 or so, if you count certain ones, verses, phrases, commands throughout the New Testament that literally have the word, one word in Greek, two words in English, or the phrase, one another, in them. Again, two words in English, one word in Greek, and so we'll call it a, a word or a phrase. The, the word occurs a hundred times in the New Testament in various forms. And it's these 59 times, though, that God is giving us as believers what we are to do and what we are to not do to, for, with one another. If I were to define the one another's, I would say it this way. I would say the one another's are instructions about attitudes and actions that are for the benefit of others in the church. The one another's are instructions about attitudes and actions that are for the benefit of others in the church. GOC, as we'll see this weekend, the beauty and the significance of the one another's is far greater than skin-deep checklist obedience. Uh, the one another's are, whether in the words of Jesus himself, or in the words of Paul, or John, or Peter, or James, or the author of Hebrews, Paul for you maybe, collectively, these one another's are a healthy representation of what Christian character and behavior should be toward one another. 
Now, the one another's, to be fair, don't represent all of what the New Testament has to say about how we ought to treat each other. Consider these verses that are not one another verses. Titus 3.2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Or Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Or a really good one, Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And Ephesians 4 goes on. And so it's not the word or the phrase that makes this category of commands, these, these responsibilities, so valuable. It is the character, uh, the godliness, the initiative even within the church that these one another's, this phrase represents, that makes these phrases so valuable to look at all together as a body of commands in the New Testament. I think of it this way. The one another's are excellent signposts. They're buoys or boundary markers for us in the church as to how to behave ourselves, how to act, how to encourage one another, how to love one another. This weekend, let's take a good hard look at our responsibility toward one another in Christ. Let's cultivate a love for one another that is fashioned after the love of Christ, a, a love that is defined by Scripture, a love that is because He first loved us. I think at this point it would be helpful for me to just read the list. Now don't worry, there's 59 one another's, but some of them repeat. Um, so I'll rifle through this list just for you to get a taste of what the one another's are. And these are by category. Uh, the most common one is love one another. And then there's outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. And don't pass judgment on one another. Greet one another. Avoid lawsuits with one another. Husbands and wives, do not deprive one another. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Count one another more significant than yourselves. Serve one another. Don't bite and devour and be consumed by one another. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. Bear with one another in love. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Don't lie to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Exhort one another. Stir up one another. Do not speak evil of one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. And finally, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. GOC, as we begin this weekend, we need to first understand what I call the heart of the one another's. What brings all 59 of these commands together besides the word? What is at the core of these commands? What is the very substance of this significant New Testament theme? So tonight, let's look at the heart of the one another's from three different perspectives. 
the heart of the one another's from three different perspectives. The first of those perspectives is that the one another's show us how to love others like Jesus. The one another's show us how to love others like Jesus. We first need to look at the plain and simple fact that the one another show us in practical, tangible, real-life ways how to love other people. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And we'll see Jesus describe the law as he sums up the law as a Pharisee tries to stump him. Matthew 22, look at verse 36. This Pharisee, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As Jesus responds to this Pharisee who is trying to trick him, Jesus, here in his answer, summarizes the entire Old Testament law. And he summarizes it in these two commands. He says, to fulfill God's law is to first love God and secondly to love others. Jesus is saying here, the heart of the law is God's very heart in and of itself. God's heart is that you would love him with everything you are, with your heart and your soul and your mind, everything you've got. And then right on the heels of that, after that, consequentially, Jesus is saying, God's heart is that you love others. You love those who are made in God's image. And so the very essence of what it means to obey God is to love Him and to love others. And yet if we consider the New Testament, the the kind of love we have for others, it's not just some kind of arbitrary love that is maybe self-defined or self-motivated. This isn't just a kind of love that you decide that you want to have when you want to have it. We must love others in the church on God's terms. We, we, lo- we must love uh, image bearers of God's image by God's love, with God's love, uh, by His definition. And so this love is defined more specifically in the New Testament. And what we see specifically is that it's a love modeled after Jesus' own example of love. Turn finally now to John 13, and we'll look at that passage briefly tonight. Uh, John 13, and we'll visit it again uh, tomorrow a little bit and then in full on Saturday. John 13, I want you to look at the beginning of that chapter because there's important context for us to see. Look at verse 1, John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, 
he loved them to the end. Stop there. Jesus faces the reality of his death. He knows all things, and he knows his hour has come. And yet the emphasis here in John 13 is that he loves those who are his to the end. That's a reality for my life and for yours, that Jesus loves us to the end of our time on this earth. Jesus at the right hand of God is loving us to the end. But here in John 13, we see that specifically applied with his disciples as he spends his last moments with them. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This incredible picture of Christ's servanthood here. Almost a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate end as the suffering servant. And in the same breath, we see later in this chapter, Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal, and Judas is sent out unbeknownst to the rest of the disciples besides John as he makes an editorial comment. Here in this room, there is a stark contrast between the servant friendship offered by Jesus and then the heartless betrayal of Judas. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus gives his new commandment. This commandment that captures the heart of God found in the Old Testament law that we saw in Matthew 22. Love God, love others. But here Jesus focuses on the second commandment. And it's new in this. Not that it wasn't captured in Old Testament law, but it's new because we are to love as Christ has loved us. We now have a paradigm. That is, in light of Christ's own example of this kind of love and with his provision for its fulfillment. Look at verse 34, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here Jesus speaks of his own love for his disciples. Yes, in washing their feet, but in more than they even know. In verse 33, Jesus speaks of uh, where he is going. He says, you cannot come. What he means is, I'm going to die, and you can't die with me, disciples. Some of you aren't even brave enough to do that. Uh, We know that. You see, when it's all said and done, Jesus' love will have been demonstrated to the fullest extent possible, from washing their 
dusty feet to the giving of his nail-pierced hands. And in all this, Jesus is our premier example of a servant-like, sacrificial kind of love that we are to love with because he first loved us. Later in John 15, on his way to Calvary, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends, as we examine these one another's, the one another's are a reflection of this love, a self-sacrificing, self-abasing, others-centered love, radically demonstrated and perfectly demonstrated by Jesus think as we consider it more often our love is defined by our own expectations of other people Uh, it's more often defined by our, our own idea of what the other person might deserve from us or maybe what we're comfortable with or maybe what isn't maybe too demanding on our time or our resources or our temperament we draw a line in the sand for our capacity to love other people, and then we take ten steps back. More often, we measure our love out for others based on our tolerance of other people or how we feel about people or we evaluate if they're cool enough to sort of be in our circle or if they're attractive enough to want to talk to or if they can make us laugh or carry on a conversation just right, then we're willing to give it a shot. For some of us, admittedly, we more often see people's flaws and shortcomings and how much they don't deserve love rather than the beauty and the value of fellow restored image bearers redeemed by the blood of Christ who are worthy of, of not only the love of Jesus, but the love of someone else who also follows him. Too often it's feelings and perception and acceptance over and above God's call for us to love one another no matter what. It's our own comfort instead of obedience to God and his word. And then if we do love others, we have this just sort of general niceness to us that's nonspecific and nonchalant about our care. The sort of smile and persona we put on on Sunday mornings. So GOC, this weekend my prayer is that we'll see God calls us to so much more. In his word, God has called us to a high and holy responsibility to each other. A kind of love that shows the world around us that we are Jesus' disciples. We follow him. And then that love is like our Savior's love for us. And so the one another show us how to love others like Jesus. Secondly, I want to bring you to a second perspective of the heart of the one another. Get a sort of second opinion as we look at this heart. The one another's are the lifeblood of the body of Christ. 
The one another's are the lifeblood of the body of Christ. A few places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12, I think of Ephesians 4, Colossians 1's got a reference. Uh, We are shown that the church, the gathered assembly of believers, the called out ones, uh, we are the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And these passages tell us Christ, He is the head of the body and that you and I are members or parts of that body. This is an analogy that helps us to understand the connectedness and the necessity of every single believer in the church. Uh, Using this analogy of the body of Christ, we need to think about the one another's as the currency of this economy, of the body. Uh, We need to think of the one another's as uh, the very lifeblood of the body of Christ. It's the one another's are how each member maintains vitality, how each member remains connected to life in the body. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, it's sort of the quintessential passage about the church as the body of Christ. We need to walk through this passage and see this picture of the body of Christ and how its members have a responsibility toward one another. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all, all we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit here Paul talks about how the human body is one and has yet many members and he says so it is with Christ so it is with Christ and the church He's introducing his analogy. And then in verse 13, there's a very significant point that Paul makes here. I just want to point it out. We'll come back to it. He says, as members of this body, we were all baptized. We were all unified. How? In the Spirit. In the Spirit. We'll come back to that truth. But it's important to note, Paul recognizes that here that we were drinking of one spirit. Now, notice Paul's observation in these next few verses. He points out the divine design, the God-ordained intention of the body. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, notice here, as he 
chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul's pointing out there is beauty in God's design. There is beauty in diversity. We're not all just eyes in the body of Christ. There is something desirable, something even notable about the different strengths and functions and even limitations and apparent shortcomings because it highlights the codependency of the different members as verse 18 says, as he chose, as he has designed, as God has intentioned. This comes into fuller view in these next few verses. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There is a distinction, a distinctness in function, a beauty in the many members of the body of Christ. But there is also here an obvious unity or codependency. And not just in the way that we would think, not just the weaker members needing the stronger ones to pull them along, but both ways. And it's, why is it that way? It's that way because, verse 24, God has so composed the body. That's the way he's designed it. You, you see, by the very way that God has composed the church with stronger and weaker, with honorable and less honorable, it is intended that, verse 25, there may be no division. It is intended for unity, a unity in diversity. In being many members, it is, as the analogy goes, one body. A unity, again, verse 25, that comes from the members having the same care for one another. That was a long walk for that very satisfying drink of water. You see, the way that has, God has designed the church isn't so that it is self-sustaining and independent and just running all on the head. The body of Christ is designed so that it needs one another as the different members. It, is, it has a dependency. There's a continual need to care for one another. And that's what these one another's are for. We see 
this care for one another in the one another's. Consider 2 Corinthians 13.11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Consider Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Or 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Grace on campus, attitudes of independence and individuality are considered cavalier, even alien to the way that God has designed his church. You see, whether it's statements like the one found in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, or later in that passage, I have no need of you. Or it's the things you and I don't dare say out loud, but maybe you think them. and Maybe you secretly hold on to these kinds of feelings. I don't need to be discipled by that guy. Uh, Those people are the ones that really don't get it in our class. And really, we would do better without them, honestly. What a nerdy way to serve. That's the way you choose to serve? That is, if there was something that was pointless, it's, it's that. It's serving that way. Or we don't need to meet with older people. They're not relevant to us for where we're at. At GOC, these are the kinds of attitudes and mentalities that are contrary to God's design for the church and yet these feelings and these thoughts are so pervasive in our sinful hearts uh, so native to our independently minded endeavors in life we are our own people first corinthians 6 says you are not your own so glorify God in your body first corinthians 12 shows us in one another shows us that our responsibility to one another as fellow members of the body of Christ is in fact the opposite of these kinds of attitudes. You see the one another's say, I need you. I need you. And I need you. And the one another's realize their need for love and for comfort, and for peace, and for kindness, and for forgiveness from God, but from other people, too, as we live this life and stumble and sin against one another. We need that same love and comfort and peace and kindness and forgiveness from each other. And the one another's also say, how and where do you need me? Because I'm here if you and when you need me. We think about the context of 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, what do we know of it? Paul is addressing the Corinthian church and telling them to stop being selfish and sinful in their worship practices. You see, whether it's pigging out at the Lord's table or showing off in the ways that they are speaking in tongues and prophesying, the Corinthian believers have been seeking their own good in worship 
they are seeking their own honor and their own comfort in how they go about worshiping God together. And that's why Paul puts this part in his letter, the more excellent way, the way of love, love that is focused on the benefit and the blessing of others around you in the church, love that is selfless, love that is intent on serving others, love that is patient and kind, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not in